Well, good morning. Uh, children, you could be dismissed for junior church. Um, thank you, Carmelo. The, uh, what is it? Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Thou my inheritance, thou now in all ways. Thou and thou only, first in my heart, high king of heaven, my treasure thou art. Uh, hopefully those words will come out in a resounding way today as we get an opportunity to look at this passage of scripture from Mark chapter 10. So if you could turn there with me, Mark chapter 10, we're going to be looking at verses 13 through 31. Mark chapter 10, verses 13 through 31. And uh, entitled this, uh, or title of this is Receiving or Rejecting the Kingdom. Hopefully you'll get that as we've been working through. And now Jesus has been marching onward towards Jerusalem. And as we've been hearing in our recent messages, what we've been seeing is that Jesus spoke of his impending death in Mark chapter 9. He talked about the fact that he is going to go to Jerusalem and there he is going to die and he is going to rise again after three days. He is making this statement stronger and stronger as he is moving towards Jerusalem. And then what he's doing is, as he's moved to this second portion of the Gospel of Mark, what he's doing is he is now working to disciple his his disciples. He's, He's teaching them. He's teaching them things, and then he's showing them by application. And he's talking about the kingdom of God. You know, we heard in our last message about marriage and divorce. And so now what he's going to do is he's going to challenge the worldview that is out there when it comes to what we believe about marriage and what we believe about divorce. And it's not surprising that right on the heels of that, he's going to talk about children this morning, and then he's going to talk about possessions, because those things are so significant in our lives. The children that we have out of these homes and out of these marriages, and then the possessions that we hold dear. There's a central theme that hopefully you're going to see coming out of this passage is this. The kingdom of heaven is either going to be received by people or it is going to be rejected by people. There is an either-or scenario here. Yes or no. I choose life or I do not. And this, this situation is going to be brought before humanity, and we're going to have to deal with that this morning. So look here in Mark chapter 10, and let's... Look at this section. Mark chapter 10, verse 13. It says this, And they were bringing children to him, that he may touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me, do not hinder them. For to such the kingdom of God... Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And then he took them, the children, in his arms, and he blessed them, laying his hands on them. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now this is the word of God, sufficient, eternal, authoritative, life-giving, and life-changing. I want you to consider worldviews today. Worldviews make all the difference in the world. How you see the world comes through the lens, kind of like my glasses, the lens through which you see things. 
worldviews will tell us about our values. It'll tell us what we value and what is significant. Our worldviews are going to make a significant difference in the fact that our values are going to come out of our worldviews. Our worldviews are going to shape and guide our behavior. Our worldviews are also going to impact our relationships with others. Today, what we have in our society is we have these computing worldviews. We have a worldview that is out there, and then we have a biblical worldview. And what you as believers are called to do is to compare everything that you hear and everything that you say and everything that you do in light of the word of God. So Jesus begins by talking about children. Now, I don't know if this is exactly right after the conversation about marriage. It probably wouldn't make sense that we were just talking about marriage, and now parents, probably, or relatives, are bringing young children uh, to Jesus. Well, why are they bringing them to Jesus? In this culture, it was not unusual for you to get a rabbinic blessing. And so what you would do is you would bring your children to a rabbi, and a rabbi would touch them and offer a blessing. That's probably what is happening here. So these small children are being brought to the Lord Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ's disciples are going to hinder him. I I find it interesting, for those of us that are parents, that one of the chief issues that we are called to do is to bring our children to Jesus, right? Over and over again, we should be bringing them. And this this word here, bringing, is not just a one-time occurrence. It is a constant occurrence. They were constantly bringing people, their kids, to Jesus. And that's what we, as parents, are called to do. And sad in our culture, oftentimes we don't. We may bring them to church, but we don't talk about Christ in the car ride home. We don't talk about Christ Sunday, Monday through Saturday. We talk about Christ on Sunday mornings. And for many children, they don't understand. It doesn't compute. It doesn't make sense. You have me here in a church service for an hour, an hour and a half, but it doesn't have an impact in our lives. And as parents, we should be very constantly bringing our children to Christ. Well, they were bringing children to Christ, and uh, then what we see is that the disciples stopped them. Look, look here at the verse, uh, end of verse 13. It says, and the disciples rebuked them. Now, it's quite interesting that these small children are being brought to Christ, and these spiritually inept and spiritually insensitive disciples are once again stopping other people from coming to Christ. We've heard this before. You remember this person that was doing some miraculous work or some type of work, and they weren't doing it with us? And Jesus says, if, if he's not against us, let him continue his work. Well, the disciples, again, spiritually insensitive, do not recognize that Jesus would want these children to come. So he rebukes them. He says, no, hinder them. Now, I should tell you this, that in our culture, it is known for a politician or a ruler to kiss a baby, right? You know, when if you're going to really make it to office, you've got to kiss a lot of babies, right? But not in this culture. In this culture, children were viewed as insignificant, They were just like an afterthought. They had no social status. Don't disturb me. I actually heard a pastor that I like to listen to. I was actually shocked when he did this. He was preaching and there was a child in the background crying. And he rebuked the mother or the the father and said, get that kid out of the service and stop um, interrupting my message. I was like, wow, man, <laughs> like, that's pretty strong. Um, Jesus had none of that. Jesus says, I want the children to come. I want my children to come. So these spiritually insensitive disciples said, rebuke them. 
So we get the small children, we get the spiritually insensitive disciples, and then what we have is the Savior's response. And I want you to see the Savior's response verse, first emotionally. How does he respond emotionally? Second, how does he respond verbally? And then third, how he responds physically. Let's start with the emotional response. Jesus saw them. That really jumps out at me because Jesus identifies you. He sees you. He knows you. He, he sees the situation, everything that's happening in your life. He knows you. He identifies it. He sees you. There is never a time that God does not see you. You know, oftentimes we can find ourselves feeling alone and separated and discouraged. And I want you to know that Jesus identifies you. He sees you. But then the second response is that he becomes indignant. It says, but Jesus saw it and he was indignant. He was angry. The other gospels, this is also in other gospels, the other gospels don't mention this indignation. I, I believe that in part it was because Peter, who was probably speaking into Mark's ear as Mark is writing this, Peter reminded himself and remembered that Jesus was really angry with us. And he mentions this indignancy. Why? Jesus is is angry over the fact that the disciples were hindering people from coming to him. That's the most important thing that we could ever do for somebody is to bring them to Christ. And if we were being hindered from coming to Christ, it's so evil. There's something wrong. Now, now maybe it's because they wanted to protect Jesus' time, perhaps. Or maybe they were upset because, well, you didn't check with us before you could get to Jesus. I don't know. But whatever it is, they're spiritually insensitive and Jesus is angry. And then Jesus not only finds himself identifying with you and indignant, but now he invites the children. Look here what it says. He said to them, let the children come to me. Come to me. He opens the door for these children to come. What a blessing that the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords is saying to you, come, come, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He says, come to me, bring the children to me. That's it's interesting. Now, we don't know how old these children are. You know, children in the, in the New Testament could be as old as, like we were talking about Jairus' daughter who was 12 years old. Um, it could be a small infant. We're, uh, Matthew, I believe it is, talks about the fact that they are babies or infants. So in all essence, these are young children because we're going to see that Jesus is going to hold them in his arms in a moment. So these young children who are helpless, hopeless of getting to Christ on their own are being brought to their Christ by their parents. He says, bring them to me and don't hinder them. You know, I found it interesting that as I was thinking about this passage and working through it, that I probably have been hurt more, sad to say, by people within the church of the Lord Jesus Christ than outside the church. Which is interesting that we tend to hurt our own wounded, we hinder our own wounded, we fight against one another, and it's just so wrong. And I think it's probably because of our flesh and because of Satan that is looking to stop the gospel from going out of our lives. And, and Jesus says, stop hindering them, he invites them. Now Jesus now turns it into an instruction here at the end of verse 14. He says, for such belong the kingdom of God. Such, like what? Innocent. no. Not innocent children, not perfect children. No, that's not what he's saying. What he's saying is this, for such, 
a small, seemingly insignificant, helpless one. That is what the kingdom is for. The kingdom is for those who are needy and without any status. See, we don't come to Christ because we have any great wealth. We don't come to Christ because of our great abilities. Christ doesn't enter us into his kingdom because of us. He enters us into his kingdom because of him. He has placed his love upon you. And you bend your knee to him. See, he says, for such is the kingdom of God. And and Jesus continues with his instruction. He says in verse 15, truly I say to you, which is an interesting phrase. I think it's used 13 times in the gospel of Mark. And so 13 times in the gospel of Mark, we're going to actually see it again in this passage. Truly, I say to you, he's in fact saying, amen, amen, so be it. And he's making this important pronouncement. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. How many people miss the kingdom of God because of this point? They will not receive They believe that they will work their way into the kingdom. And so what what Jesus is saying is that, I, I love this one author put it this way. He says, the characteristics of a child enable them to accept everything as a gift. They receive it without presumption, without assumption of deservedness, with humility, acknowledging total dependence on the grantor. See, that is how we get the kingdom. We get the kingdom when we recognize we have nothing in our hands that we bring. We simply cling to his cross. You remember when Jesus began the Sermon on the Mount, he said, blessed are the what? Poor in spirit. Spiritually bankrupt. See, it's that type of person that will receive the kingdom. And what what Jesus is saying is, truly I say to you, that unless you recognize that the kingdom of God is not earned by status or ability, it is granted to you as a gift that you receive, you'll never get the kingdom of God. So he's giving that instruction. And now what he does is he illustrates his instruction, which Jesus often does. He teaches his disciples and then he shows them how to do it. He applies it. He takes them, verse 16, in his arms. Also, it's such a blessing. Can you imagine, I mean, if I brought my kid, I mean, I can remember when we would bring our children and have other people hold them, and it's like, wow, that's pretty cool. But the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords is, is holding my baby in his arms. Well, every time you and I bring our children to Christ, he's doing the same thing. He's holding them. In his arms. So Jesus took them. He embraced them. It could even be a hug of them. It's such an authentic care. Such affection that the Lord Jesus Christ shows to them. He wraps them and he holds them in their arms. And he lays his hands on them. It's a form of blessing. So what do we see here? We saw the small children. We saw the spiritually insensitive disciples. We see the Savior's response. And then he takes us into a story. The rich young man. Look here in verse 17. It says this. And he was setting out on his journey. And a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit in life, eternal life? Okay, so now Jesus has now finished the conversation here with on marriage and divorce. He has blessed the children, and now he's getting ready to go on to a journey. 
And now as he's going on this journey, maybe the young man recognized, oh, Jesus is leaving town. I got to go after him. So he's running after him, which, which is unusual in this culture. It's not very um, honorable or respectable to be running. Um, you remember in the uh, prodigal son story where the father in the, in the story is actually running after his son? That is symbolic of this is not something that you would normally do in the culture. And he's pushed everything aside to run after Christ, which is so important. It's a real important thing. And I want you to see first this man's sincerity. He ran after him. And then not only did he run after him, he has this pressing concern, he's zealous, then he kneels before Christ, which is, you don't do that in this culture. He kneels before him, such deference, such respect he has for the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he asked him a sincere question. And really, this is the pivotal question that all of us have to ask. How am I made right before a holy God? How do I get heaven? should be the question of all questions. It's the question that each one of us must answer. And the worldview out there is going to tell you something radically different. The biblical answer is going to be radically different than what you hear today. So he runs up to Jesus. He says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So he raises this question. Now, what we find out about this young, this man is that he's in young. He's a young man. We find that from other passages. We're going to find that this guy is accomplished. He's considered a ruler. He is wealthy. He is zealous. He is sincere. He is moral. He is the guy that you want your daughter to marry, right? Maybe not. He was also full of the wrong assumptions. So, so Jesus starts by saying this. He starts to search him. And he says in verse 18, Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? So he starts with the very first word, good teacher. And he says, okay, why are you calling me good? Because don't you recognize that the only one that is good is who? God alone. So what he's doing is now he's searching this man and he is trying to find out from this man, do you recognize who you are really talking to? Do you really recognize that I am God? I am the King of Kings. I am the Lord of Lords. Do you recognize who you are talking to? I don't think he did. I think he saw Jesus as a righteous man. He saw Jesus as a spiritual leader. He saw Jesus as a wise teacher, but he did not see Jesus as God. He thought that Jesus was on the right path to salvation, and he wanted to figure out what Jesus knew and what do I need to add to my resume to be on that same path that you're on. Well, doesn't that sound like us today in our culture? How many of us, if I were to ask you this piercing question, what... If God, actually, more importantly, would ask you this question, you have now taken your last breath, and you are standing before God, and God says, why should I allow you into my kingdom? What is the first thing that comes to your mind? See, the first thing that will come to this man's mind is this. I, 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 I gained a lot of things. I, I kept the law perfectly. I, I was a religious leader. I, I gave to my synagogue. I, in fact, was a ruler in my synagogue. He would go down his resume. 
You remember when Jesus was giving this uh, situation where there was this Pharisee and then the tax collector. And the Pharisee was saying, you know, thank God I'm not not like this guy. That's in essence what is happening here. And then the tax collector is is beating his breast and says, Lord, be gracious to me, merciful to me, because I am the sinner. That's the whole difference between salvation. Salvation of works or salvation by grace alone. So what must I do? Now Jesus does something in these searching statements that is completely surprising. I should say this before I go there. Some people get tripped up on this. Why do you call me good? And they, they get tripped up on the fact that, see, if Jesus were really God, he would not have said that. He, in essence, was saying that I'm not really God. That's not what Jesus was saying. What Jesus was not, he was not denying his deity. What he was doing is trying to expose what was going on in this man's heart, in his life. And then Jesus, in verse 19, is now going to try to figure out the knowledge of sin that this man has. Because this is so important. Our greatest problem is sin, and our greatest answer is the Savior. Our greatest problem is guilt, and our greatest need is grace. So what he wants to do is expose this. And Jesus does something that most of us probably would not do when we were thinking about evangelizing somebody. But it is such an important thing to do. You have to show them their need. And Jesus said in verse 19, you, you know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. So if you're familiar with the Ten Commandments, when Moses came down from the mountain with the Ten Commandments, there were two tablets. The first tablet had the first four commandments. They all were vertical, our love for God. The second tablet were horizontal commandments, our love for others. That's how Jesus was able to summarize the Ten Commandments into this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as you love yourself. So so Jesus could have gone to the first tablet. But he didn't. He went to the easier tablet, the horizontal relationships. And he says, how you doing with this? Compare yourself with this. What he's doing is he's exposing the shallowness of this man's belief. See, we believe in our society that if I have not done something externally, I have not sinned. That is not what God says. Because if you look at the Sermon on the Mount, how many times is it in the Sermon on the Mount Jesus said, you think you haven't committed murder, but if you're angry with your brother, you've committed murder. If you're unforgiving, you have committed murder in your own heart. You think you haven't committed adultery, but if you have sexual or lustful thoughts about somebody, you've committed adultery already. What Jesus is saying is that he's looking at the external and then he brings it even deeper to the heart. See, the law is crushing to us because there's not a person in this room that can keep the Ten Commandments. We fail. And see, the problem with this young man is this. He looks at the Ten Commandments and he sees just his hands, his external behavior. He doesn't see his heart. And what he says here in verse 20, he said, and he said to them, the young man said, Teacher, I've kept all of these from my youth. For my bar mitzvah, probably, from the time I was 13 and I became an adult, I've kept all of these things. The superficiality of him, his superficial goodness, his external behavior, he does not see his very heart. He's so self-deceived, he's so blind, he doesn't see his greatest problem. 
See, the reason why we preach law first and then gospel is that you have to bring a person to the end of themselves and then bring them to the only one that could save them, Christ. There's so many people today that preach good news, but no bad news. What's good news if you have no bad news? You know, if you have a diagnosis of cancer and then somebody says, I can heal you, I can, I got a program to heal you, that's exciting. But if you've never been diagnosed, why does it matter? You need to know the problem so that you can go to the person that can solve your problem. He didn't see a problem. He said that I've done this all. So Jesus continues to search him. I love this in verse 13. He says this, and Jesus looked at him. I want you to see the the gaze, this prolonged gaze that Jesus has. Once again, loving, compassionate, caring. He is looking at you. And he says, and it says, loved him. So he looked at him, he loved him, and then he spoke to him. You know, I find it interesting that, uh, I think it was Jay, I know it's Jay Adams. Jay Adams said this, biblical counseling is this. It's caring confrontation out of concern. Those three things. You care about people. You confront people because you are concerned for people. Well, that's what Jesus is doing here. He cares for them. He confronts them because of their sin. And he is concerned for this young man. This is so unlike the Pharisees. Because when the Pharisees would come to Jesus to ask him a question, those searching questions, were they looking because they were caring about Jesus or were they looking to trip him up? I think they were looking to trip him up. That's not what Jesus is doing here. Jesus is so moved and sensitive to this young man's plight. And he, he speaks and he, he says to him, one thing you lack. I guess I could have entitled the message that. One thing you lack. And then Jesus, interestingly enough, says one thing you lack. And then he gives him three imperatives One promise and then one more imperative. Here's the three imperatives. Go, so he wants you to leave. Sell all that you have. Total liquidation. Give, share your wealth. And here's the promise. You will have treasures in heaven. Wow. And then the last imperative. Come and follow me. Now other passages will say, come take up your cross and follow me. But the the essence there is this, leave, get rid of all these things, and come to me. Now, don't misunderstand what Jesus is saying. Jesus is not saying that if you have wealth right now, what you need to do is to give up all that wealth, and that will get you the kingdom. That's not what he's saying. He is not saying that this young man simply needed to sell off his things, and he would have the eternity in heaven. Not what he's saying. Jesus knew And this is not a universal principle. This is specific to this young man. He knew that the greatest problem that this young man had was his God was his what? His money and his self. That was his me. That's what he wanted. That's what he wanted more than anything else. And Jesus exposed. He says, you have not gotten for the first tablet. You think you've gotten through the both tablets. You haven't gotten through the second tablet or the first tablet because you've made another God other than God. You covet. You've dishonored. You steal. You rob. You don't give glory to God. You have failed miserably. 
that Jesus has pointed to his very problem. And what does the young man do? Sorrow, verse 22. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowfully. Disheartened, one, one pastor put it, the face. You know, as a counselor, what I will do is oftentimes I will leave my counseling office and I will go to the waiting room to find my, my person. And I will be able to catch a person by the face oftentimes. And as I catch them by the face, I could see oftentimes what's going on because their eyes and their face will reveal what's oftentimes going on in their heart. This man is disheartened. He's been crushed by this. He's saddened. His face has, has fallen. His, he's a heaviness of his heart. And then the amazing thing is this. The feet that were running him towards Christ early on are now running him away from Christ. The very face that was looking at Christ, give me the answer, is now turning away from Christ. So sorrowful. And here's the answer, or the reason. For he had great possessions. What an indictment. He would rather part with the person of Christ than the possessions of this life. I wonder if that's us. Young people, is your reputation in school more important to you than standing up for the Lord Jesus Christ? Are your relationships more important to you, everyone, than standing up for the Lord Jesus Christ? Are your possessions, your home, your cars, more important to you than the Lord Jesus Christ? Maybe some of you have been so hurt by something that somebody has done in your past and you can't seem to let it go. Is that more important to you than the Lord Jesus Christ? Acceptance, past sins, unforgiveness, money, relationships, passion. What is it that binds you? What is it that keeps you from displaying the person and work of Christ in your life and clinging to him? This man walked away because he would rather hold on to those things than to hold on to Christ. He leaves. Now Jesus does a survey. He studies this. He talks with his disciples And he says this in verse 23. And Jesus looked around and he said to his disciples, how difficult it is for those who have great wealth to enter the kingdom of God. I found it interesting. He's called the, what, rich young ruler. And I was thinking about this as I was preparing this. The greatest obstacles in our culture today to salvation are from those that are rich, those that are young, and those that are in leadership. Think about it. Those that have great wealth, those in Hollywood, those stars, those people are billionaires and millionaires, oftentimes have banked on their wealth and their riches rather than Christ. Young people today, it breaks my heart, the number of young people, it's so good to see the number of you here in the church today, 
But in a lot of churches today, there are young people that have walked away from Christ. They just don't see it, maybe because they don't see it in their homes. And maybe that's why there's such a gap. So parents, we need to be so very careful what we're doing to live out our families. But then it's, we could be godly in our families and we could be godly in raising our kids and then we could find ourselves, they are just impacted by a worldview culture that is so godless. And it's attacking them. The world, the riches, the young people, but the rulers. I, I would dare say this and Pastor Tim prayed early for our leaders. It is so important for us to pray for our leaders. But I see such godlessness coming from Washington and such godlessness coming from our capitals. I don't hear scripture. And it's so concerning. Well, Jesus does the study. He says, it's so hard, so difficult for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of heaven. And he studies this and he surveys this. And and the disciples are in shock. Verse 24. The disciples were amazed at his words. In our culture today, we believe that those who are wealthy are blessed. Those that are healthy are blessed. We have it preached from pulpits even today that health, wealth, and prosperity is a blessing. We have a whole book of the Bible, Job, of people that were attacking Job because they saw the struggles that he was going through and thought that he must have done something wrong. See, it's a, it's a belief in our society That if you have all those good things, like this man with this incredible resume, God should just take you in. And Jesus makes a shocking statement. He reiterates it. He says this, but Jesus said to them, again, children, hear the compassion. How difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. And then he gives this shocking analogy. He says, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now, some people have talked about a gate in Jerusalem, and they call it the needle eye gate, I believe. And then you have your camel, and he would have his burden, and what you have to do is remove the burden so the camel would go down on its knees to get through the gate. I'm not there. Some also translate camel to mean rope, and a rope is going through an eye of a needle, and you can't get the rope through an eye of a needle. Why can't I just take Jesus at his word? The largest animal in Jerusalem was a camel. The smallest entrance that you could think of is an eye of a needle. Jesus is just using an analogy. It's not possible. It's his whole point. As, as crazy as it would be to take a camel and put it through the eye of a needle, it is that crazy to believe that you will ever get to the kingdom of heaven without God. That's the whole point. Now they went from being shocked to stunned. <laughs> Luke 26. And they were exceedingly astonished. And they said to them, then who can be saved? See, now that is the question. See, that is where they are starting to wake up. These spiritually insensitive disciples are starting to see the light. You can't do it. Your resume will not do it. 
Your status will not do it. The fact that you were here in church will not do it. The fact that you gave money in the poll, uh, in the offering will not do it. The fact that you will take the communion service to this after this morning will not do it. Salvation comes through only one person, Christ. And Jesus looked at them again. I, I can almost, I don't know, drama here. I, I can almost see that he gazes in this dramatic pause. And he gazes at them. And he says this. He has now reached the summit. Here's the summit. With man, it is what? Impossible. But not with God. For all things are possible with God. No one can be saved by their own efforts. God alone provides that salvation. He'll talk about that in a little bit here. I believe Pastor Doug, I'm not sure, has this next passage. Um, Verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, it is coming through Christ alone. Salvation comes by no one else. That's why salvation in Christianity is different than any other religion. I often hear my Christians, friends, say that, well, our religion is basically the same as all other world religions. Either you don't know Christianity well, or you don't know the world religions well. Because the world religions are all about what you must do. Christianity is about what has been done for you. Well, didn't Jesus say that this is what this man needed to do? Yes, he did. He was trying to crush him to get him to the point where he drove him to his knees so that then he would look up to Christ alone. Now, Peter, of course, being the leader of this group, he says, okay, let's talk about sacrifice here. Peter says in verse 28, uh, we have left everything and followed you. And what's amazing is Jesus doesn't deny it. In verse 29, Jesus says, truly, I say to you, there is none who has left house or brother or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold. Now and in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and land with persecutions in the age to come, eternal life. So Jesus, Peter is talking about the sacrifice that they've given. Now, now Peter has not totally liquidated. He's still got a home. We've heard that early on. He's still got his fishing, his fishing profession. We've heard about his fishing profession. So he hasn't given up everything. But in essence, he has turned away from the world and he's been moving towards Christ. And Jesus says that if you make that kind of sacrifice, the solemn assertion is this, I'm going to bless you. See, what this rich young ruler was doing was he was clinging to these earthly possessions. And Jesus says, I can give you eternal possessions. You remember the woman at the well? And the woman at the well says, you know, I've got, I want a water that will satisfy me. And Jesus says, I can give you a water that you'll never be thirsty ever again. Was he talking about earthly water? No, he's talking about the spiritual life that he could give her. I just so love this, that Jesus says that you're going to get some new relationships in Christ. Amazing. You're not only going to get new relationships, you're going to get new things, new possessions. 
you know, my brother and um, allowed me to stay in his home when our house was being um, was being renovated. There are people in this congregation that helped me rebuild my home so that we could sell it. I got so many possessions from these people that are greater than what I've ever had. And what Jesus is saying in this, you get new relationships. You get new possessions. But you're also going to get some new struggles. See, health, wealth, and prosperity are not going to tell you that you're going to get persecutions, but you are. See, that when you are living Christ-like, you are going to struggle in this world. We're going to see more and more of it. Please be warned that as we are going further and further down a path, we are going to suffer greater and greater persecution. But be of gear cheer, what? Jesus says, I have what? Overcome this world. So Jesus makes that staggering promise that you're going to get exceedingly, abundantly, above all that you can ask or imagine, as Paul says in Ephesians. And then Jesus ends by summarizing it. Verse 31. He says, but many who are first will be last. And the last will be first. This great reversal. Jesus is saying that I'm going to reverse things. You think it's all about your possessions and the things that you have. It's not. It's about surrendering those things and turning to me. So let's try to bring this home for a moment. First, I want you to see that faith and dependence are as necessary for entrance into the kingdom of God. It is necessary that we are brought lowly and broken, that we're contrite. You must come to a place where you repent and believe. You must turn away from one thing and turn to Christ. That's the only way for salvation. We, we must acknowledge our unworthiness. We must acknowledge our sinfulness. We must acknowledge that we have nothing to do to save ourselves. And we turn to Christ alone. It's faith and, dependent. Now, faith and dependence. We come to Christ empty. We come to Christ hopeless. We come to Christ helpless. As the hymn goes, there's no wealth, no power, no wisdom that he should give his only son. All right, second, I want you to see the failure of the disciples. The disciples, once again, whether it's pride or insensitivity, they keep forgetting the message of the gospel. They keep forgetting the message and they keep forgetting sharing that gospel message with others. I want you to also see the failure of worldliness. Now, this man walks away with his riches, but he walks away sorrowful. That jumps out at me, that you got what you say you wanted, and you thought it was going to bring you happiness, but it didn't. The only one that could ever give him satisfaction, security, and significance is Christ, and he's gone because you've turned away from him. Two more things I want you to consider. Stewardship. These are God's resources, not mine. And these, these resources that I have, I am called to use them to share, to accomplish God's purpose. They've been entrusted to us for a moment, and we are called to share them with others, to advance God's kingdom, not our own. The last thing I want you to think about is Jesus, who's the most important thing here. I find that there were two rich young rulers, as one author said, which is interesting. There's a rich young ruler of earthly riches, earthly rulership, and young. And then there's the Lord Jesus Christ, who's rich beyond imagination. And he who was rich 
yet for your sakes became poor, that you, through his poverty, might become what? Rich. He was rich. He was young. And he's the king of kings, the lord of lords. He is the ruler. So which ruler, which rich man, which young man are you following today? I pray today is the day that you will forsake all, cure this malignancy of worldliness that is in your heart and life, and you can't cure it because you go to the only one that can, Christ. God has given you a free gift of grace. He has pardoned all of your sins in Christ. It's not based on your character or conduct. It's based on the character and conduct of Christ alone. Christ has fully and completely satisfied the justice of God, and the only response is faith. And that faith is even given to you as a gift. So this morning, I pray that you be not turning away from Christ, but running to him. I pray that for those of us that are parents, bring our kids to Christ. I pray for those of us that are, depending on our worldly riches, recognize that there's only one rich young ruler. Let's lean and bend to him. So Lord, we praise you this morning. And we thank you. We thank you for the fact that it is in Christ that we are forgiven. It is in Christ that we are free. Lord, I I thank you for the fact that it was Christ alone that became our Savior and Christ alone who fulfilled everything that we desperately need. He, He lived righteously for us. He died substitutionarily for us. He rose victoriously for us. He ascended on high for us. He is at your right hand right now interceding for us. Father, I know that there are people that are here in this congregation or people that are listening to me this morning that have heard messages of needing to turn away from self and this world to Christ, and they haven't done it. They've walked out of services kind of like this young man walked away from Christ. I pray today is not the day that they will do that again. I pray today is the day that they will recognize that it is nothing that they can ever do to enter the kingdom except by your grace. And that they cling to that by faith. And even that faith you grant to them. Do that today. For the many of us that do know you, Lord. Help us to stop being distracted by the things of this world. Help us to know the blessings that we have in the beloved. And help us to glory in you, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.